I'm Dave Rubin and joining me today is an author, podcast host, and creator of the new film, 2000 Mules, which is out right now. Dinesh D'Souza, welcome back to the Rubin Report. Dave, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to it. It's been a couple years since we've chatted on camera, my friend, but I feel that we have to give a warning right up top here. There is a good chance that my channel will be blown up on YouTube <laughs> because of this, but I did create Locals. You launched 2,000 Mules on Locals, which I obviously want to get into, and I'm honored that you did that. And anything that we cannot put on YouTube for this interview, we will put up. Well, I'll just say it. We'll put it up on both our channels. Fair enough? I mean, Dave, what a surreal time we live in. I, I don't think you and I would have predicted a decade ago that we would find that these basic liberties, which are supposed to be outside the bounds of politics, free speech rights, for example, would somehow be abridged in this way. And we'd have to watch what we say and figure out, should I put this up? I have exactly the same issue with my daily podcast. Um, and with this movie, you know, I couldn't put the trailer up on YouTube. I couldn't buy ads on Facebook. So I had to develop an entirely different business plan for releasing this movie as compared to any of my earlier ones. So let's get into that business plan in just a moment. But first, let's, let's focus on the movie itself. I was at the, I suppose it was the pre-premiere of the movie, which was at Mar-a-Lago, and it was sort of a, of a who's who of, uh, let's say, right-wing media or whatever you want to call all of us at this point. Uh, and I got to see the movie. I thought it was excellent. Many people on my book tour, one of the questions that I got more than anything else over the last couple of weeks was, what did you think of the movie? And I recommended that everyone see it, make some judgments for themselves. What was the initial starting point of when you, did you want to immediately ask questions like the night of the election or was it a couple of weeks later? What, what was sort of the genesis of the whole idea? Well, like a lot of people, I, I noticed the anomalies of 2020 and they struck me as really strange. But once the curtain, well, once Biden was inaugurated and then of course a curtain of censorship descends on this topic, I thought, man, you know, we probably will never find out what really happened in the 2020 election. With each passing day, the event becomes more remote. And, uh, and I was dissatisfied with the rhetoric a little bit on both sides. Now, you know, start with the left, the most secure election in history. And I thought to myself, even before I started anything with 2000 mules, well, how could you possibly know that? And they'd be like, well, Dinesh, where's your proof of fraud? And I'm like, well, let's say I had none. I have no proof. Does it make it the most secure election of all time? I mean, <laughs> right. these are still actual, separate things. Yeah. You haven't done an actual comparison of the amount of fraud in the last seven elections, for example, to show me that it was the least in 2020. And yet that became the mantra. Now, on the conservative side, as you know, a lot of flying theories going about anomalies, uh, episodic fraud. I mean, look at this dead guy who voted over here. Look at that guy who was stuffing ballots over there. But of course, the courts in these situations uh, use the principle that can be called the but for principle. But for the fraud, would the election have come out differently? And that's a pretty high bar. You have to show a magnitude of fraud. And that was, I never felt was really done, never shown, never proven. And so again, I thought, let's move on. This is something that we might never know. So it wasn't until I sat down with the, the two principles of the organization called True the Vote, that I realized that they had sort of approached the election like a cold case, like cold case files. And they figured out, you know, there actually is a way to go back and, and track the movements of these so-called mules 
And there is a way also to look uh, through surveillance video and uh, in a sense, take us back to the days before and during the 2020 election to actually see what happened with your own two eyes. Okay, so before we get into some of the specifics of how they use geotagging and how they were actually tracking these mules, and I want you to actually define what a mule is, which you do in the movie, obviously. How do you as a filmmaker, because you've obviously made a bunch of documentaries before, how do you make sure that your own personal opinions don't override the truth? Because to me, that's gotta be the hardest part. I think there are moments in the movie where you sort of address that a little bit, but to remove all of your bias for all of us is almost completely impossible. It is impossible. And I would argue that in terms of attaining that kind of pure objectivity, that's never gonna happen. I mean, that doesn't occur uh, at all. But what you can do is try to have that sort of uh, empathetic ability, and, and it's a debating ability, by the way, to always see the strength of the counter argument of the other guy's point of view and import that into the film. Also, one of my techniques here was I recognize that among the kind of Salem podcast hosts, I'm thinking of people like Eric Metaxas and Larry Elder, there were a mix of views about the election. Some of them, mm -hmm. it was stolen for sure. Some of them, nah, I haven't seen any proof of it. And I, I had the idea of importing them into the movie, uh, having their initial thoughts, then showing them the evidence and literally spontaneously filming their reaction and then asking them for their assessments. I thought in this way, it goes beyond just sort of Dinesh's singular interpretation. And it becomes a conversation about the issue in which it's possible that somebody watching the movie would go, you know, I see stronger ground in what uh, Larry Elder is saying than anything Dinesh might have said. So by, by, by doing it that way, it does what a good movie does, which is it lays out a narrative with a range of positions and a range of potential uh, possible interpretations. It was interesting. So you use this round table of the Salem hosts. So it's, it's you and Dennis Prager and Larry Elder and Eric Metaxas and Charlie Kirk. Am I forgetting anyone? Uh, oh, and Seb Gorka. And Gorka, and, yeah, the gang. And you guys sort of spurt, you know, you guys come and go throughout the movie discussing what's going on. And it's interesting because Dennis, I think, comes off as the most skeptical at the beginning. He kind of comes around a little bit more, but everyone's asking questions throughout. And obviously you didn't cut the questions. So uh, there, there's some credit there. I mean, in some ways, that's the best part where Dennis will say, for example, hey, listen, you know, you have a mule, you're showing this guy stuffing ballots. What if you run up to him right now and grab his ballots and look at them? What would you see on the ballot? I mean, what's cool about it to me is I thought to myself, those are the kinds of questions that people in the audience are going to be asking. So by putting them right in the movie, the movie doesn't have to come back and answer those questions because they are anticipated and addressed and at least discussed in the film itself. Okay, so for the people that have not seen it yet, without blowing anything major, can you at least, can you give the kind of elevator pitch on the, the methodology that you guys were looking at related to people's smartphones and where they were going and, and just the, the basic idea of what 2000 Mules is? Sure, the, the film drawing on the work of this group called True the Vote, a kind of election intelligence group, if you will, uh, uses two independent modes of investigation or two, two modes of argument. The first one is cell phone geotracking. Uh, and that arises out of the simple point that we're at a stage of technology now, and perhaps also a stage where we have relinquished our privacy to a point now where our movements can be tracked. Uh, they're tracked because of, not because of cell phone towers that are pinging, it's because of apps inside our phone that allow so-called aggregators to collect this data. And by the way, it's sold on the open market. Commercial companies can buy it. It's also very valuable to law enforcement, intelligence agencies. But essentially, if I was being geotracked right now, 
of you could tell for sure. I woke up in my bedroom, in my house. I then went to a coffee shop. Then I went to the studio to record my podcast. Then I had lunch with a friend at this restaurant. Then I came home. And all of that is shown not by a single snapshot of my phone, but by what's called a pattern of life. You're showing the movement of my cell phone. Now, obviously, if I gave my cell phone to my wife, Debbie, it would show her movements, but that the cell phone is making these movements and going to these locations is really not open to doubt. And so what True the Vote did is they used the cell phone geotracking used in many other areas. Their kind of genius idea was let's apply that to ballot trafficking. And what we're looking for are these mules. Now, what's a mule? basically a paid operative who is handed ballots uh, and asked to drop them off to deliver them to uh, mail-in drop boxes. And, uh, and we've been able to identify based on a, a criterion, actually a very high criterion, mules going to 10 or more drop boxes, some 2,000 mules, and that's where the title of the movie comes from. Right, so you believe that there are way more than 2,000 mules, but you were just focusing on this group that had this very sort of high threshold. And as you show in the movie, I mean, a lot of these people that were repeatedly going to these drop boxes, they, I mean, they look like transients or almost homeless people. A lot of them, they're showing up at 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. They kind of look disheveled. Um, they, in other words, they don't look like sort of the upstanding citizen that's doing their due service for the country because they've collected some ballots for you know, some people that can't, you know, drop the ballots off themselves. It doesn't come off exactly like that. Exactly. Now, in the five states that we look at, which is Georgia, Arizona, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, uh, you don't have the kind of liberal vote harvesting where you can give your ballot to anyone and have them drop it off. Th that is the case, by the way, in California. But even in California, you can't pay people to deliver ballots. I can't say to my neighbor, go drop off my ballot and here's 50 bucks, because the moment money comes in, there's bribery. Essentially, the vote is contaminated. And even a legal vote becomes illegal when money changes hands. Now, in places like Georgia and Arizona, you can only give your ballot to an immediate family member or if you're confined, to a caregiver, that's it. And I think you can see this is the power of the video. The second line of evidence in the movie is you begin to see not just cell phone devices moving from one Dropbox to another, but you actually get to see the mules. And I think it's very telling because when you see a guy jump out, jump out of a car, it's three in the morning, he looks left and right, make sure no one's looking at him. It has all the hallmarks to any observer that this is an illicit and nefarious operation being conducted under cover of night. Okay, so even for someone that hasn't seen the movie yet, they're hearing you, they're going, okay, so let's get this straight. These guys have the phones, we're tracking these people, they're showing up repeatedly, they look kind of shady, you've got video. Now, some of them are wearing masks because it was also during COVID or they were disguising themselves, uh, but, but, but a bunch of them, you can see their faces. So clearly we can figure out who these people are. So what kind of work have you done or, or is ongoing to figure out who they are? And I guess the real question is who paid them? Right. So they when you when you when you see these mules operating, you see that they stop at organizations and that's where they get the ballots. So the mules don't come up with their own ballots. They they go to what we call vote stash houses. And what are they? Well, they turn out to be kind of far left organizations deeply embedded in the inner city, places like Atlanta, Philadelphia, Detroit and so on. So they go to these places, they get the ballots. And then Wait, they to be clear, though, because you actually show the map in the movie, you show them actually going to these places before they're doing the, the, the drop-off, actually. 
Yeah, not only that, but once they, they go to three or four drop boxes, they need to get more ballots. So they go right back to the organization, sort of replenish, and then they continue. Now, it's important to say why they do this, because you'd think, wait a minute, if a mule is dumping 300 ballots, why don't you go to one drop box and just unload them, save yourself a whole bunch of trouble? Well, the reason is that the next morning, the election officials open these drop boxes, and let's say the typical drop box has like 80 ballots, and then this one drop box has like 700 ballots, you'd know right away something is up. So the mules are instructed not to do that. They drop five ballots here, eight ballots there. That's why they go on these routes, and that, of course, makes them easier to track. The reason the True the Votes research, I think, is so powerful here is they set such a high bar. 10 or more drop boxes. Because see, let's say that they had set a bar of two drop boxes. Now, nobody has a reason to go to two. Even if you have your family member's ballots, you're gonna go put them in one drop box. But some guy was gonna come forward and say, well, you know what, I, I put my ballots in the first box, I had to tie my shoe at the second box, so you're calling me a mule, I'm not a mule. So instead of all this nonsense, set a bar of 10 or more drop boxes. Let's remember that these aren't, this isn't the post office, this isn't where you go to drop your bills off. These are only for ballots. There's no other reason to go to these drop boxes other than to dump ballots. And why would you go to 10 or more drop boxes unless you were stuffing them with ballots? So that's the sort of technological reasoning behind the power of the geo-tracking evidence. Now, I wish we had more video, but True the Vote does have 4 million minutes of video. So they have a lot, but unfortunately, a lot of drop boxes don't have video. Right. So are they going through more video now? Because there is, you have some people, you have their faces. I mean, have they been doing any work to track these people? Do you do you know where any of these people are. I mean, again, a lot of them sort of seem like transients or just probably unidentifiable for one reason or another, but there's gotta be some way to get some of them, right? Well, here's the key point. I mean, obviously you're right. Some of these mules are visible, you can see their face and they can be recognized that way. But the more important thing is that True the Vote has the cell phone IDs of all the mules, all the 2000 mules. So when you track a cell phone, each cell phone has a unique kind of digital fingerprint, the cell phone ID. Each cell phone has only one ID. And it's about as good technologically as having, you know, a finger, human fingerprint or uh, even human DNA. It has the same degree of reliability. Now, Interestingly, True the Vote doesn't have the names of these mules, but law enforcement, uh, they unmask these cell phones all the time. So unmasking simply means you go to a judge, you say, hey, listen, I've got these guys at 10 or more drop boxes, so I have probable cause. The judge goes, here's a warrant. You go to the cell phone provider, they give you the names of all the mules, and then you go interview them, you know, who paid you, who put you up to it, and so on. So where are you at in that process? So where we are is that True the Vote has been working hard with the state of Georgia, but there's a very subtle and complex investigation. And it's not clear that the Secretary of State Raffensperger, who's leading this investigation, is trying to push it forward or hold it back. He's involved in the very complex politics inside of Georgia. Now, in Yuma County, Arizona, the sheriff just announced, unknown to us, that there's a new investigation into criminal ballot trafficking in Yuma. And this is, of course, important because in the movie, we interview a mule. Where is she from? San Luis, inside of Yuma County. True the Vote has done work in Yuma for months. So while the sheriff goes, I'm not doing it because of a movie, and, and frankly, we wouldn't want him to say any differently, uh, here is a guy who has been checking into this, and in a sense, it provides a certain independent validation that this is a legitimate issue. This kind of ballot trafficking does go on, and it is a crime. What has been sort of what you would say is the most legit criticism of the movie that you've seen? You know, I've seen a lot of just sort of, oh, here's Dinesh peddling the big lie. Actually, like a minute before we connected on Skype, I saw that you tweeted out, it was a criticism from, I think it was like a former FBI guy who basically just said, oh, Dinesh's big lie movie is going to the theaters, but there's no criticism of the movie. It's just sort of this blanket 
criticism, but I'm sure you've heard some things that have, that have brought up issues or maybe things that you wish you addressed, et cetera. There are two very uh, plausible and legitimate criticisms, and I've tried to address both. One was brought up by Megyn Kelly, um, and it was basically this. Um, where do the ballots come from? So in other words, we know that they come from the nonprofits, but where do the nonprofits get them? Are, yep. these, are these legal votes that are being delivered in an illegal way, or are these fraudulent and illegal votes in the first place that are also being delivered in a fraudulent way? So and Dennis sort of brings that up in the movie, doesn't he, as well? Yeah, we address this directly in the movie. And what we say is, in a sense, we cannot know for sure because we're tracking the ballot from the Dropbox back. And we know the origination point is the nonprofit. So we know the nonprofits are paying the mules. Now, where do the nonprofits get the ballots? Now, the problem here is this. I cannot think. If you were talking about 100 ballots, I could say, well, you know what? Some nonprofit went through a housing complex. They collected everybody's ballot. But we're talking about hundreds of thousands of ballots being collected in five separate states. So I say to myself, what is the... What is the plausible scenario of a legal voter, say Dave Rubin or Dinesh, saying, you know what, I'm feeling a little lazy today. I don't want to go down to the mail and drop box. I'm going to go to a left-wing nonprofit in the inner city, give them my lawful ballot so they can hire a mule to go in the middle of the night wearing gloves and take photos of the ballots going in. It makes no sense. So there's, I cannot think of any plausible way for these to be all legal ballots. So my guess is it's a mixture of legal and illegal ballots, but all these ballots are rendered fraudulent by the simple fact that the mules are being paid and, and that paid ballot trafficking is illegal in all 50 states. So you mentioned the take a picture thing. So that is one of the interesting things that many times, almost every time, the way they get paid is they have to take a picture as they're putting the ballots in. Otherwise, obviously, for all they know, the nonprofit thinks that they're just dumping the ballots somewhere. Um, would there be any other reason to take a picture? I mean, is there any <laughs> reason someone might take, I mean, other than for Instagram purposes or something? Well, this is the key point. So Washington Post, Philip Bump and others have basically said, it's not uncommon for people to take selfies to show that they voted. They're really proud of their citizenship. They want to show that they participated. But see, that involves taking a picture of yourself. Right, uh, right. You see, right. you see the mule standing behind the camera taking a photo of the ballot going in. So again, you have to, and the same thing with the gloves. If there were gloves from early voting, October 1, all the way through the Georgia runoffs, January 5th, then you'd go, well, maybe it's COVID. But when you see that there are no gloves all the way in early voting and on election day, and the gloves only show up in the Georgia runoffs immediately following an indictment in Arizona, where the FBI busts a criminal ring of ballot traffickers by finding their fingerprints on multiple ballots. Well, which theory is a better explanation of those facts, the COVID theory or the theory that the word went out among the mules? Guys, you better start wearing latex gloves. What should we know about these nonprofits and, and sort of where they're getting their funding and are they coordinating it with each other? I mean, are they, is this just, you know, these happen to be a bunch of left-wing things that are all kind of doing the same thing? I mean, do we know how connected they are? Well, what's really interesting, Dave, and we, we have Scott Walter from Capital Research Center in the movie, he talks about this. A big river of cash goes to these left-wing nonprofits right before the election. And this is a little bit strange because nonprofits are by law forbidden from engaging in explicit electioneering. They, they can generally exhort people, be a good citizen, get out and vote, but they're not allowed to do any politicking that will benefit any particular candidate or party. And the IRS could not be more clear about this. So why would you have this large river of cash coming from all these foundations, coming from Soros, coming from Warren Buffett, flowing into these nonprofits, when these nonprofits are supposed to, as I say, be neutrals in the election process? 
So I don't see this as a, quote, conspiracy. What I see rather going on is there's a coordination on the left and among the Democrats to sort of enable the heist. So consider like Mark Zuckerberg, he puts all this money in and he uses it as financial leverage to get all these mail and drop boxes. Some of these cities weren't planning on having these this many drop boxes, but Zuckerberg is, you want my money, you need to put up all these drop boxes. And if you don't do it, you're gonna have to give my money back. So you have a private citizen, unbelievably, infiltrating election offices and using his financial muscle to get to essentially run the way the election is conducted in 2020. Now, again, I'm not saying Zuckerberg knew about the mules. I'm assuming he didn't. But think of it. If he didn't fund the drop boxes, the mules wouldn't have a place to go to. Dinesh, it was only $400 million that he personally gave to fortify the election. Are you saying $400 million might have ticked this thing a little? Dave, you, you got to, you're talking to a guy who spent eight months in overnight confinement for giving $20,000 to a college friend of mine. I was found in violation of the campaign finance laws. I was basically, you know, uh, locked up overnight. So when I see the amount of money that these guys are able to put in, now, quite frankly, the part of the genius of what Zuckerberg did is I can't find a law that says you can't do that. I think in a way, the audacity of that move is that nobody even anticipated that actual state laws that govern elections could somehow be manipulated from the outside by a guy coming in essentially with a sack full of cash. So see, all of that enabled the heist, but it doesn't mean there was a heist. Uh, this was sort of, you know, my thinking as I read Molly Hemingway's book called Rigged, as it talks about, it's sort of like, here's a bank, they've, you know, they've called off the guards, they've turned on the surveillance, they've told the tellers, you know, don't be too, like, fastidious to match signatures. But then Molly stops, because she's like, so it was very easy to pull off a heist. I think where this movie takes off is it's able to say, not only was it possible to have a heist, we're going to show you the heist. I mean, for me as a filmmaker, once I saw the video, I realized this is very cinematic. This is going to work for a movie because quite frankly, as a movie maker, if you if you do a whodunit, you need to show the crime taking place. So let's talk about the, the censorship part of this because after the election uh, and as you guys address in the movie, I mean, that the election night at I was watching in LA, I was with the Daily Wire folks, I was on air with them. I left at about 11 p.m. on you know, Pacific time. Trump was winning in all of those eight states. I remember driving home, I was feeling great about things, you know, like, oh wow, it, it happened again, blah, blah, blah. And then you know, two hours later, suddenly everything stops and the rest is history. My feeling for the three months into January was basically, hey, I'll cover as much as I can because I don't know exactly what happened, but let's let some process, let's let some level of transparency take place. Now I had all, all kinds of problems with YouTube and videos going down and demonetized, of course, and everything else. Fortunately, I, I had locals and I wanna get into that in a second. But what level of difficulty did you have even just with the idea, hey, I'm gonna do this topic just to raise money, to say, how am I gonna get this thing distributed, et cetera? It was a big problem. And in fact, when I took the idea to Salem Media, they had a summit with Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips of True the Vote. They looked at some of the evidence and I could tell they they were a little reluctant to believe it, in part because not so much that they questioned the evidence, but they were thinking, we're a public company. We're a radio company. What's going to happen if all our major hosts get thrown off YouTube and Facebook? I mean, what what happens to the value of our company? So this was a major corporate decision. And to their credit, 
when when we got done, they were basically like, you know what, we're basically a news operation. This is a legitimate news story. You can debate it. And, and this is a little bit of my kind of my criticism of Fox over this is simply the fact that they won't mention it. I mean, how crazy is that? Uh, I even did a 10,000 word exchange with Philip Bump in the Washington Post, a kind of a Q&A. So here's the Washington Post devoting acres of coverage won't be mentioned on Fox News. But I realized early on I'm going to have to put this movie out in a very different way. I don't want to put it on any sort of cancelable platform because I don't want it to be one week into the release. Amazon pulls it down from Amazon Prime or it's off of Apple iTunes. So I decided the movie's only going up on uncancelable platforms. That's why I was so delighted uh, to talk to Rumble and talk to locals and figure out a way to have it on that platform in addition to the Salem platform, which is called Salem Now. So basically what you did was release the movie on Locals and I created Locals for this exact purpose. It didn't matter whether, forget this specific topic, it didn't matter if a creator was doing something I liked or disliked, as long as it was, as it was legal, my feeling was, hey, put it on Locals and if you can make some money, that's great. You've made a ton of money on this, which I know is probably, uh, it's probably rewarding at some level, although I suspect it's not, you're, you're doing all right, so it's not your primary driver here but you've made at least 4 million bucks on locals alone on this thing. Um, What do you feel about that part of it, about sort of releasing something in a new way? I mean, I think we really can start challenging Hulu and Netflix and the rest by showing them, hey, you can produce your own stuff and, and really succeed without the traditional avenues. I mean, it's so awesome. See, right now, and I've been doing this since for about 10 years, my first film, Obama's America, came out in 2012. So this is my sixth documentary, also released a feature film. Now, normally if you're a content creator, you put a film out there, well, take a film in the theater. If it's $12 for a ticket, you get six. The theater right off the top keeps half, and then you have various commissions and bites of the apple. So you're lucky to end up with three, you know, um, with 30 or 40 cents on the dollar. Uh, And the beauty about locals is essentially, look, we take a commission, 10% typically, and you get the rest. And so think of how exciting this is for content creators, not just conservatives. I mean, anyone, uh, people who want to do stand-up comedy, people. So essentially what happens is locals then becomes a movie platform. And this is really what was so exciting about my conversations with Asaf at Locals, also with Chris Pavlovsky. They're like, you know, this has the potential to rewrite the rules of the internet a little bit. And and I found that to be thrilling. I mean, that that was not, that was kind of a bonus of the whole thing, but how awesome it is to, uh, to create viable platforms that protect free speech, because I think long-term we're counting on the market to value free speech platforms better than censorship platforms, which are obviously bogus. And by the way, Dinesh, I know you know this, but for anyone that doesn't like you or didn't like the movie, they're welcome to make their own movie countering all of your ideas, and we'll still put that on locals. That's the whole point. That's the beauty of it. And see, I I never say differently. And in fact, as you saw from my tweet with Frank Figliucci, who's one of these deep state guys, he goes on MSNBC, it's a conspiracy theory. And my point is, guys, you know, for once, uh, step forward onto a kind of public arena and let's engage these arguments. Let's see if it's a conspiracy theory. Let's see if you can evaluate this. They'll never do this. Uh, Joe Scarborough will never do it. Uh, Rachel Maddow will never do it. So we're in this very odd phase in our public debate where the left relies on the ignorance of its own side and they they, they just recycle these terms. Eh, Dinesh is the big lie all over again. And of course, Joe Scarborough was, it's just these conspiracy theories are whack-a-mole. You knock down one, another one pops up and tomorrow it'll be something else. And in some ways, I guess some of the theories, uh, kind of outlandish theories that were advanced early on 
uh, in late 2020 and early 2021 have made my job more difficult because when I see someone saying, you know, the Chinese are hacking our election, I'm like, well, I don't see any Chinese. I mean, I just see some lights on a screen and I, I'm not a cyber expert. So that even if the Chinese were doing that, I would not be in a position to fairly assess or adjudicate that. So what's the solution part of this? I mean, the main thing that I'm trying to focus on on my show is it's one thing to address problems, whether we're dealing with critical race theory or the gender stuff or election stuff, whatever it might be. It's one thing to address the problem, but what do we actually do now? I mean, we've got midterms coming up. If we've exposed some of this stuff, if this is all legit, what do we do so it does not happen again? Well, it provides a rational foundation, the movie does, for a lot of the things in the voter integrity laws. So things, simple things like, you know, you need a legit valid ID, which you need, as you know, for opening a bank account or going to the doctor. Uh, second, that you don't want to weaken these uh, signature requirements, because think about it. If you're a voter and you show up, they have your signature, but they also have you. But in this mail-in and absentee ballot, it's just an envelope. And once the ballot is taken out of the envelope, essentially that's it. You've separated the two pieces of evidence. The only verification is the signature on the envelope. So if you don't really check that, how do you even know this is a valid vote? So there's that. What I would add to all that is I cannot think of a good reason not to have 24-7 surveillance on all drop boxes. I mean, some conservatives are like, let's go back to election day. One day everybody shows up, you know, limited exceptions for absentee ballots. But I think that's not going to happen. As long as individual states are in charge of their own election processes, you're going to have some mail-in drop boxes. And I say, if you're going to have the mail-in drop boxes, in fact, this is, by the way, called for in the election rules. You don't need new laws. You just need the states to follow the laws and establish the and, and establish surveillance on these drop boxes. Are, are you worried that we're going to end up in a spot probably in the next decade, maybe we're there already, where... Basically, neither side is going to accept election results. I mean, Trump won in 2016 and Hillary was literally tweeting about the illegitimate president, the entire mainstream media. The, you know, we had 18 impeachments that nobody even remembers why they happened. Russia collusion, all of this nonsense. And then obviously since then, now, now Trump and, and your movie, et cetera, are, that we could end up in a situation that's much more dangerous um, in a, in a bigger sense, because just no one will accept results anymore. We'll all cater, you know, we'll all cater to our own side and we'll end up in a perpetual state of election warfare. Well, this is, um, part of a broader concern. Uh, I think that's emerged in the last, you know, decade really. And that is that, um, when I came to America, I had kind of a civics book idea of America. You got these two sides and they are, they're, it's like a debating um, a team. And each side puts forward its vision for the future and the American people look at it and go, we'll go with this guy. And maybe next time we'll go with that guy. Um, and, but I never doubted when I went into a, pulled a curtain, cast my ballot, that someone is going to actually honestly tabulate those ballots. I just assumed that was the case. Just like I assumed if you had asked me 10, 15 years ago, you know, Dinesh, 95% of people who are arrested for a federal crime, you know, plead guilty. Why do you think that is? And I would go, well, it's probably because they did it. Why else would they be arrested, right? Cops only go after the bad guys. And so this civics book idea of America, I think, has been really shaken once I've seen that, you know, you can't count anymore on free speech. You can't count on rights of conscience. You can't count on equal rights under the law. You can't count on the majority party not to use the weapons of the state against its political opponents. And now you can't count on one of the candidates. I mean, let's forget about 2020 for a moment. Let's go back to 2016. You know, here is Hillary giving the order for this uh, information on the Alpha Bank to be disseminated 
This is information essentially cooked up in a, in a fraudulent way to frame Trump and make it look like he's a Russian agent. So you have one, think of this, think of how absurd this would be if we go back to the Truman race or we go back even further to, you know, despite the acrimony of the Civil War, I mean, Stephen Douglas would never dream of doing this to Abraham Lincoln. Right, so you could talk about the Truman race. It's sort of like we're in the Truman show at this point. So in, in essence, Hillary just okayed the dossier being leaked to the media, knowing that the media would kind of like it and it didn't matter if it was really true or not. Robbie Mook has now testified this much uh, and nobody's gonna pay a price, right? Like, do you have any belief that somehow Hillary will pay the price for this or anyone? I mean, maybe they'll string up some third rate person or something. Right. I mean, look, at Durham's just going after Sussman on one count of lying when the, the real ingenuity of this was that they said, look, we, if we release this to the media, friendly though the media is, they're going to have to say it came from the campaign. So we don't want that. So we need one of our guys to go to the FBI, give it to them and ask them to start an investigation. Then we will direct the media to the investigation, which will give a kind of independent plausibility. So the kind of diabolical ingenuity of this in the middle of an election campaign aimed at kind of making your opponent into not just an honest adversary, but a foreign agent. I mean, this I think has set up some of the poison that we see in our politics today. Do you ever admire the evil? Do you ever admire it? I do, and uh, absolutely. I, I do because I, I think, you know, I, I contrast the kind of, um, ingenuity and energy of the other side with the sort of, I mean, just look at this. If I had released this movie, let's say I was Michael Moore and I released 2000 mules in the 2016 election, proving that Trump and the Trumpsters had stolen the election. Can you imagine the volcanic reaction? I mean, uh, Schumer would be screaming on the floor, Pelosi would be having a hysterics, Elizabeth Warren be all of AOC. Whereas I had Steve Scalise, the number two Republican in the house in my podcast a couple days ago, he's like, Dinesh, I've been hearing a few things about 2,000 mules. Could you send me a DVD? <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll go home and FedEx one to you, Steve. But man, yeah. aren't your constituents talking about, shouldn't you be all over this already? We can download the movie. You don't need, to need me to FedEx. So the Republicans in that sense are the party of the elephant. They're really slow on the uptake. Um, and so I do admire from a distance the kind of industry energy and just sort of sheer tenacity of the other side. Are you worried that there's sort of an exhaustion with this to some degree that, you know, Trump spoke at the Mar-a-Lago event before the, before the film debut, and he, was he obviously believes that there was fraud. There's no doubt that that's what he believes. Um, but I was noticing a little bit of the tenor of the speech. It doesn't necessarily strike me as if, that he can use this to win if he's going to run again, meaning that it, it doesn't go to what people want out of him as sort of the relentless winner. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you could run in 2024 solely by pointing back to uh, what happened in 2020. I think Trump actually knows that. Trump is the kind of guy, though, I think he, he, he wants to be vindicated because this is obviously critically important to him. Now, I was very careful in this film, you know, even though some of the fact checkers say, you know, pro-Trump film, uh, this is not a film that has a whole lot of Donald Trump in it. And you you saw that for yourself. Trump is maybe two minutes in the entire film. And contrast my film with, say, Dave Bossie's film called Rigged, which is 45 minutes long and about 10 full minutes of an interview with Trump. So Trump is a big presence. I didn't want to make this about Trump. Now, Trump obviously ran in the 2020 election, but I wanted to make this really about 
uh, the integrity of the democratic process. Because I think stealing a vote, you're not really stealing from Trump. You're stealing from the American people and you're kind of stealing the United States of America. That's really the stakes involved, whether or not you are persuaded by the evidence in the film. Do you think some of the system, maybe at the state level, is particularly designed, or, or say specifically designed, to make people question what's going on? So for example, as you know, I, I lived in LA for eight years, I now live in the free state of Florida, but during the uh, recall election for Gavin Newsom, I campaigned with Larry Elder. Three days after the election, which obviously did not go the way we wanted, I was audited by the state. You will find that to be no great surprise. That was the day I decided to leave, uh, coincidentally enough. Uh, but even worse than that, to some degree, I don't know if you know this, but when they sent you the mail-in ballot in California, I voted in person. They did not want to see my ID, but they send you the mail-in ballot no matter which way, you know, whether you want it or not. There's only so many ways you can fold a three-way ballot, you know, a three-way piece of paper. And the way they did it in California, no matter which way you folded it, you could either see yes on recall on one side through the envelope, or you could see Larry Elder's name. And I thought this has to be by design, that they made it that no matter which way you're gonna fold it, the envelope is either not thick enough or they designed the fold to be a particular way so that whether, it's, whether it means they're doing anything or not, enough people with a brain are gonna look at the process and go, man, something is seriously broken here. So what we need here, you know how in the legal system you have an adversary process, and that adversary process is not present in election administration. What I mean is that the typical, I, I, there's a line to this effect in the movie, that Republicans care about the campaign and Democrats care about the election. So Republicans will be like, let's have a big rally, let's get the word out, and so on. But Democrats are like, you know what? Who's gonna who's gonna decide whose name appears first versus second versus third? You know, as you say, where's the fold gonna come? Who's gonna open the mail and drop boxes and, and take those envelopes out? Who's gonna open the envelopes and actually count the vote? Who's gonna decide if the signature matches yes or no? So the Democrats in that way recognize that the the process of the election is critical to kind of nudging the outcome. But I think one of the effects of the movie. Uh, is going to be to wake up Republicans that it's not enough to focus on the campaign. You do need to be more as a poll watcher, a poll judge, et cetera. You need to be more active in the process of the election itself. So what would you want to happen in the midterms? I mean, you sort of alluded to this earlier. It sounds like maybe Arizona, at least for one, is gonna do a little bit more to secure the elections. I suspect you're a little less enthused maybe about Georgia. I mean, probably way less about, about uh, Pennsylvania. I mean, what do you think can happen? With, we, we have months to go and it's, you know, we do this state by state. Yes, and laws are made slowly. So Georgia passed a voter integrity law. I, I find it doubtful that they would pass another one uh, leading up to this November. Uh, their voter integrity law has some good things in it. That's why I come up with my simple thing that, listen, this idea of having surveillance on the drop boxes is in the election rules now. You don't need to pass a law. Republicans just need to say, listen, this is a non-negotiable item. We have to have this. Think about it. I mean, we have we have surveillance on every, you know, Home Depot, every parking lot, every ATM. So this idea that sort of surveillance is voter suppression is complete nonsense. In fact, even interestingly, even the Zuckerberg contract with these cities and counties does have a provision in there that these drop 
boxes will have surveillance. And that was, in fact, not whole states didn't even do that. They said they would, but they just didn't. And other states, for weird reasons, the drop the, um, the cameras were turned off. In other cases, cameras are pointed, but not at the drop box. They're pointed like a tree. And so in part, this is why we, you know, people are demanding of the film. This comes, by the way, to one, you know, another one of these criticisms. Dinesh, you can't show me the same mules going from one drop box to another to another on video. And my answer is out of 10 uh, drop boxes, only one has video. It's kind of like you have a serial killer and he goes to five different homes. He leaves his DNA, in this case, of course, digital DNA in all of them, but only one of the homes had a video camera. So you look at the time he got there. You can tell from his cell phone he got there Tuesday night, 2 a.m. in the morning. You look in the video, boom, there he is. So the case is, in fact, I think, adequately proven. But of course, Ben Shapiro and others are like, wait a minute, Dinesh, I'd like to see the guy at the other four homes. And I would say, you know what? If there was surveillance, you sure would see him. Right. So in essence, not everyone, as you said, either has the camera or it's aimed the wrong way. But the digital footprint of where they were, that would you say that's completely inconclusive? Because one of the things they mention at the beginning of the movie you're not going to get exactly, exactly where they were, right? It's within a certain, a certain distance, but then they can sort of track within that. Well, geotracking can tell the difference between motion and stopping at a place. So when people say things like, you know, a lot of these drop boxes are near the library, guys going to return the books. No, uh, you can easily see a smooth line of a guy walking right by the drop box to go to a library, as opposed to going to the drop box, then back to his car, then on to the next drop box. So uh, geotracking can distinguish between a location and going by something. So that's uh, that's the first point uh, to keep in mind. The second thing, again, of course, is the high bar of 10 or more drop boxes. Because let's say I, I grant to fill a bump of the Washington Post. I mean, it's not true, but let's say it is true that it's a, there's a 20 or 30 foot radius. You have to be within 20 or 30 feet for geotracking to be accurate. Now, the reason that's not true is that, you know, you live, in, you live in Miami, you go to the Miami airport and call an Uber, and you'll see that your cell phone will tell you you're standing in front of gate <laughs> J, you know, door seven. It right, knows exactly right. where you are, not approximately, not within 30 feet. Similarly, if you throw your phone into a field with tall grass and you go on your iPad and go find my phone, it's not going to take you to within 30 feet of your phone. It's going to take you right to your phone. So CDC is using geotracking for social distancing. Well, it has to be accurate to within six feet or you couldn't even do that. So, but, but putting all that aside, by setting the bar of 10 or more drop boxes, you know, even if you're within 30 feet of 10 drop boxes, something's fishy right there because you're going to those drop boxes. Again, you're not driving past them. You're going to them and then typically back to your car and on to the next drop box. Did, did you find anyone with a legit reason for doing it? Someone that actually was like, no, no, I, there was a reason I had to go to over 10 drop boxes with seven envelopes each time at 4 a.m. I mean, was there anyone that it came well, off as, oh, that's somewhat legit? I mean, the only possible explanation, which was given by AP, uh, and is of course refuted by the videos, they go, wait a minute, this could be election workers. And I go, well, it could be election workers if they were taking ballots out of the drop box. But when you see them on video stuffing ballots into the drop box, that's really not what election workers do. Um, look, geotracking is in a way better than video for the same reason that DNA is better than eyewitness. Because in a murder case, an eyewitness could be mistaken. People look similar, you know, I didn't get a good angle shot of him. And we find that on the video. I actually have the same guy at more than one Dropbox. The problem is the video angle is so bad, it's not obvious it's the same guy. Now, I know it's the same guy because it's the same phone. So the phone becomes the way of placing the person at the scene of the crime. Uh, the video just becomes a kind of nice confirmation that the, that the, the cell phone geotracking is being sort of independently corroborated. 
Dinesh, I suspect YouTube is not gonna be very happy with us, uh, but everyone can check out the movie and I, I would recommend that everyone checks it out and, and come to some conclusions for themselves or ask questions. You're answering questions about the movie on Twitter and elsewhere. They can go to 2000mules.locals.com and we'll put the link down below. And if you could hang tight, we'll do a one more thing exclusive on my Locals community. I'm gonna ask you the most controversial question I can come up with. Will you stick around? Yep. Excellent. Thanks for tuning in to The Rubin Report. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're looking for early and exclusive content, you can join me on Locals at rubinreport.locals.com.